Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is Make It Pine. Make It Pine. M-I-P. With Massimella Mark Thompson. Make It Pine. Get woke. Ladies and gentlemen, my guest today is a prolific science writer, editor, and ethicist who is the author of the seminal book, Medical Apartheid. The Dark History of Experimentation from Colonial Times to the Present, which won a National Book Critics Circle Award, the Penn Oakland Award, and the American Library Association Black Caucus Notification Award. Also, she's written five other well-received books, including A Terrible Thing to Waste, Environmental Racism, and Its Assault on the American Mind. And today we're going to talk about just published during Black History Month of 2021, Carte Blanche, the erosion of informed consent in medical research. We are happy to have with us Harriet Washington. Welcome to Make It Plain, Harriet Washington. Thank you very much. I'm really thrilled to be here. It's a pleasure to to have you. Well, congratulations on the new book. Certainly, medical apartheid was a was a very big deal uh, and uh, liberating in terms of information for many of us. Tell us about um, in general about this follow up and carte blanche and why you chose to take on this subject now. Well. The book focuses on something that most Americans take for granted. We all assume, understandably so, that we can't be involved in medical research without our permission. We assume that we're protected by statutes that mandate we have to have informed consent before we engage in medical research. But it's not true. Since 1996, there have been two laws passed, two changes to the law that provide for using people in medical research without even telling them. 
you know. So they've been put into effect and used frequently. I'm finding tens of thousands of cases. And the public doesn't know about this. I lecture widely and frequently, and every time I go to a city where I know there's been a large study like that, I ask the audience, have you heard of the polyheme study? Have you heard of the hyper, um, hypothermia study? And no one ever has. So the book was necessary to warn people that this is happening. And, uh, and my hope is that people will be concerned as I am and go to their lawmakers and insist that the law be revised so that all Americans will, again, have the right of informed consent. Walk us through what happens here, how one becomes involved in anything like experimentation without their knowledge and without their consent. There are many ways. But in 1996, the law said that trauma victims can be um, drawn into medical research without asking their permission or even telling them. A trauma victim, that's a very wide description. You can have a heart attack. You can have a gunshot wound, be in a car accident. And so it involves a lot of people. And so also that same year, a waiver was applied to the law that said that certain types of research, you didn't need to get people's permission. The rationale was twofold. One was that sometimes you're only collecting data and it's not going to harm the person. So if you collect the data and their name is associated with it, then you can do the study without telling them. The other rationale was that a study might not involve more than minimal risk. And if it's only minimal risk, then you can do the study without asking people's permission. Well, their definition of minimal risk is very vague and encompasses things like the ketamine experiment. Remember Elijah McCain? He was given ketamine in non-consensual research. It's one of those studies, and he died from it. Of the people I have spoken to in that study, um, it's not unusual to lose your ability to breathe. So if you put on a ventilator, what happens is the ambulance comes, the police or ambulance decide that you are agitated. They inject you with ketamine without your knowledge. You wake up the next morning in the hospital on a ventilator. The unlucky ones, like McLean, die. That's the kind of study that has been allowed in this country since 1996, and people don't seem to be aware of this. And are we finding once again that this type of of uninformed uh, or consent, shall we say, is disproportionately affecting African-Americans? Without all the data, we just can't know. Mm-hmm. I, w- I think it's a danger for all Americans. Anybody can be infected by this law. But I will say that when I looked into the ketamine study, I found a few people who had been subjected to it, um, wrote about them, and only afterwards did I realize that every one of them was African-American. So that's not proof wow. at all. And so we just don't know. But if this study follows American patterns, I would not be surprised to find that it's primarily people of color. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we can find ourselves in situations where we're in the hospital, emergency and what have you. You're saying that when we're there, decisions can be made while we're unconscious, even that we'll never we'll never know about. Correct. Possible, but it's more likely that it happens outside the hospital. We don't actually know everything that's happening in hospitals, especially with coronavirus. Now that hospitals are closed institutions, your family can't go visit. You may be unconscious. We just don't know what's happening there. We know some things that are very troubling. I talk about those as well. But the studies uh, that I know of that I've described 
are things that happen outside the hospital where the ambulance attendants make the decision or they're, they're recorded by computer to, invo- to enroll you in the experiment. So it happens outside the hospital, but it's continued within the hospital often. What can, I mean, this is alarming. What can people possibly do about this? Very little, unfortunately. You know, an individual person has no power here. If I'm stopped by the police and they decide I'm acted in an agitated manner and I'm in Minneapolis or parts of Colorado or the cities where these laws have been conducted, nothing can stop them from telling them to inject me with ketamine and I might die or wake up in the hospital in a ventilator. Um, so an individual subject has very little power, probably no power. But this is a problem that has been engendered by laws. And my idea is that what we need to do is be aware of the laws and then band together to insist that they be revoked. That's what needs to happen. So my hope is that people reading this book and learning of this will get together and let their lawmakers know they're opposed to this. In, in you know, I'm sorry, go ahead. Forgive me. Go ahead. I just, want, I just thought of something. I want to add this. Part of the problem here is a larger problem that I wrote about in an earlier book, Deadly Monopolies. And that is that, you know, lobbyists have no place in healthcare as far as I'm concerned. But lobbyists pay lawmakers a lot of money to pass laws that are friendly to their corporation, friendly to the institution. But they, these laws often run counter to what we need. So if we need to get rid of healthcare lobbyists is a larger picture. So elected people will pass laws that we want passed, not pass laws that companies want passed. Because, you know, not using informed consent is good for companies. They don't have to spend time and money on notifying people about their studies. They can just use the bodies. Um, yeah, that is very, very troubling. How is this problem exacerbated? Well, you alluded to it in terms of what we can and cannot see in hospitals, but are there other ways, even before you get to the hospital, that it's exacerbated in this COVID culture in which we live right now? You know, the ambulance is a really in- interesting institution because um, we think of it as life-giving, right? And most of the time it is. But it's also becoming a site for abuse, in my, in my opinion. When an ambulance um, goes outside of its role of getting you to the hospital quickly and becomes a site of experimentation without consent, that's part of the problem. That's what we're seeing now. The polyheme study of artificial blood used an ambulance where the Attendants were um, told by computer whether they give people standard of care or the experimental treatment. And with ketamine, ambulance attendants are told they're given discretion to give a patient ketamine or not, not doctors, ambulance attendants. And the police have been accused of um, sometimes encouraging or even, you know, coercing them into giving ketamine to people. So that's a really interesting and, uh, and very troubling change. The role of the ambulance really needs examination. I didn't really get it into this in the book, but one of the things that um, alerted me to, da- to the dangers here is thinking about ambulances, how they have a different history with African-Americans and white people. African-Americans in the South especially, but also in the North, often were not helped by ambulances. They wouldn't pick up black people and take them to the hospital. So instead, in the South particularly, you know what they use to transport people to medical care if they're black? What's that? Hearses. 
Yes. The wow. funeral com- funeral companies would let their hearses be used. And black doctors, older black doctors are often like bitterly ironic saying, yeah, well, it's appropriate because you put them in a hearse and then they would tool from town to town, desperately looking for a hospital that would take a black patient until they died. So um, the role of the ambulance, the changing role here is something that we really need to pay attention to and make sure it changes in a way that's actually going to support our health and not abuse. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, what gives the, the ambulance that type of carte blanche and power? Is it, the, is, uh, is it the laws themselves? I mean, most people don't think of, you know, the ambulance having that much authority. Exactly. It's policy. You know, um, it's not a law that I know of, and I think I would have found if there were one. It's rather the fact that a lot of the rationale for not using informed consent, the rationale for not telling people what you propose to do with them and getting their permission is it's quicker and easier. You know, you the emphasis on urgency. So the idea is we want to get these people, we want to get as many as possible, as quickly as possible. The ambulance is the best way to pick up people who are unconscious and may not be in a condition to complain if they're used in research without their permission. Um, and so the urgency makes the ambulance like the perfect instrument for robbing people of consent. And that's a policy that I don't think really comes from the, I really don't know how much comes from the ambulance companies. I think it has to do more with hospitals um, and their decision about where they're going to center the research. Mm, interesting, interesting. So the hospitals are making that policy. No, I said I think. I can't be certain about that. It might be. Some might argue it's collusion between ambulance companies and the hospitals. I, I really don't know. I did not examine that. There were things I thought were more urgent, but it's a good question. It deserves an answer. So after we get to the hospital, how now when you get to the hospital, you get the question, Do you, you know, well, actually, the only question you get nowadays is uh, whether or not you have a, a living will or directive. But when it comes to the experimentation, um, what's the difference there? Is it just as bad when we get to the hospital? It depends on the study. But when you get to the hospital, there is still no one to ask you your permission or um, to tell you what happened, um, depending on the study. But for the ketamine study, you wake up the next morning on a ventilator very often, and there's a, there's a form. And the form says it's a consent form. And it's asking your permission to be in the study. And it says, if you don't want to be in the study, just let us know. And we'll take you out. How do you take someone out of a study after you've already given them ketamine? They've already lost their ability to breathe. They're on a ventilator. You can't do that. What they mean by taking you out of the study is we're not going to use your data. But as um, one has pointed out to me, he said, but people's objection uh, Carl Elliott, he said people's objection is not to waking up, is not to, um, you know, having their data used. It's waking up in the hospital on a ventilator. So it's meaningless. Um, and it, you really can't be taken out of the study from your point of view. You've already been subjected to it. You already have suffered the risk of having this ketamine put into you. Wow. Uh, yes. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And And this is obviously not something 
that is well known. I, I want to go back a, a, for a minute. Um, you uh, had actually uh, tweeted in in promoting your new book, Carte Blanche, the, the Erosion of Informed Consent in Medical Research. Um, you referenced a an op-ed in the New York Times that you wrote several years ago about what was going on in Africa, why Africa fears Western medicine. I'm curious, I'm intrigued by that. Talk us through um, the relationship uh, between the erosion of informed consent and what has been going on with Africa in terms of Western medicine. I wrote that 14 years ago. And um, several things are happening in general in um, the global south. Western researchers have often conducted research there without getting people's permission. And sometimes they defend it. But that article also talked about the fact that you have Western-trained doctors and Western doctors, most of whom are there in Africa to help people. That most people go into medicine to help people. But a small percentage of them are monsters. They're people who went there who are basically serial killers. In fact, one uh, went to jail for killing patients in New York and a few other states too, for killing three patients in the U.S. But he's accused of killing 60 patients in Zimbabwe. There are doctors who did non-consensual research with people, women with breast cancer, a whole, and then there's uh, Wouter Bassan of South Africa, head of their chemical and biological weapons project. It was focused on eliminating the enemies, killing the enemies of apartheid, black people, right? His um, major goal was to find a contraceptive that would selectively sterilize black people and that they could pretend was a vaccine. Okay, all these things have happened in Africa. Sometimes the doctors went to jail. Sometimes they, often they did not. So we have a we have a situation where Western doctors have been consistently, not in large numbers, but with very high profile, abusing, murdering, practicing genocide and under the guise of practicing medicine, just like Nazi doctors did, you know, in the Third Reich. But when Africans express fear or, or um, suspicion of medicine, we don't respect those fears. You know, you're being paranoid, you know. You are so credulous, you don't understand that we're trying to help you. Well, sometimes you're not trying to help them. I cataloged that 14 years ago. and But what's happened in the last couple of years uh, is really as bad or even worse. We had Pfizer that went to Nigeria and um, tested an experimental antibiotic on people who did not understand that they were in a research study and children died. Children had horrible side effects like going deaf. Pfizer finally um, settled with the parents, but there was a non-disclosure agreement. So um, even though Pfizer Doctors had uh, falsified forms, consent forms were missing. You know, I feel that they escaped some of the worst legal penalties. So we've, and also last April, two French doctors said very openly, we need to conduct these COVID-19 studies that are ethically troubled in the developing world. Where people, you know, we can test them on prostitutes. We can, people there are, don't have access to medical care. They'll grasp at the research straw. And um, people were outraged that they said that, but I read medical journal articles that said the exact same thing. So, and then of course there was a CIA 
that had a sham vaccine campaign where they pretended to vaccinate people against polio, what they were actually doing was getting blood samples, looking for the relatives of Osama bin Laden. When they found them and they found him, they abandoned the program. So people who thought they were vaccinated against polio actually were not. It required several shots. They only got one. That's our own CIA going to countries, pretending to vaccinate people, but actually using it for political gains. And of course, when people found this out, they were very angry. Anybody would be angry. In the aftermath, polio rates skyrocketed. People did not want to be, didn't want to accept polio vaccine, understandably. But when we talk about people rejecting polio vaccine in the third world, it's always language around how dumb they are to do it and how they're so fearful for no reason and so suspicious and paranoid. So um, we need to do a better job of respecting the fears of people who are um, avoiding medication and vaccines to understand why and realizing that we play a role in that. We're responsible. Well, as you just described, and as your book also, your first book, medical, not your first book, but one of your your, your seminal book, Medical Apartheid, describes, um, people have those same fears about the COVID vaccine. You just mentioned Pfizer after all. Um, and, and they're, you know, doing the COVID vaccine. There are especially African-Americans who are afraid of getting this vaccine. What, what's your response? To I'm that? not sure. I'm not sure that's true. Let's look at what's happened in the past year. When we were doing clinical trials, every single day I read headlines in the newspaper. I read journal articles saying, African-Americans aren't joining these trials. They're afraid of medical research because of Tuskegee. They won't join the trials. That's all you heard. Well, I, call, I, I couldn't find any data, though. If that's the case, tell me the numbers. No numbers anywhere. I finally called um, a researcher at Johns Hopkins who was very responsive and very generous, and she sent me the original data. 10% of people in the Moderna trial were African-American. About 10% of people in the Pfizer trial were Af also African-American. African-Americans make up 12.3% of the population in this country. That means they were volunteering at the same rate or very close rate to their population. They were not at all exhibiting any aversion. It simply wasn't true. What's interesting about this is I wrote this up for a national magazine. It is basically reluctant to publish it. They keep asking me more and more questions. They give more and more data. And finally, they said in an editorial note, are you saying the media got it wrong? Like incredulous. I'm like, well, yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. The media got it wrong. Well, no, well let me just say, well, I, you know, and, and that's fine. Although I've even had some, you know, pretty reputable African-American healthcare folk on this show, uh, physicians, doctors, who agree that, African-Americans were not as involved in the clinical trials as they could and should have been. But even with that, the conversation in the black community today is still a level of paranoia about the vaccine. And I don't think so. I don't think so. First of all, the term paranoia refers to an unfounded fear. It wrote, you're well, you're correct. Yeah. yeah. Uh, 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 is is the, the the term I should use is what is called a rational apprehension. Right. I like the term iatrophobia. It means a fear of healers, a fear of medical care. Um, however, I don't like ten dollar words, but that one is really appropriate. Um, however, the fact that some people feel differently—that's fine. You know what? We can certainly have different opinions. 
I like to have my opinions guided by the facts. And I'm just sharing what the facts told me. A 10% representation does not reflect a a wide-scale refusal to engage when you're only 12% of the population. So my question becomes now that we're reading every day again about how African-Americans are avoiding the vaccine, how true is it? Without the data, you can't know until you know the data, but there are things that make me question it. Number one, we just saw a pattern where the figures are misrepresented in this very same way. And number two, the fact that African-Americans are signing up at a lower number doesn't mean that they're signing up at a lower number because they're afraid of the vaccine or don't want to take the vaccine. It means that it may mean they have less access to it. And the reality is that we have policies that hamper the access of African-Americans to the vaccine. Um, Prioritizing people who are very elderly makes sense. They have a very high rate of vulnerability, right? But so do African-Americans. And if you, we have prioritized people who are 85 and plus. People who are 90 years old in this country are twice as common among whites than blacks. We don't, we're a very young population. Hispanic Americans are a young population. Native Americans are a young population. We have a lower life expectancy. And so the median age is a lot lower. Fewer of us are going to reach that age where we're prioritized, which means that invoking age absolutely means that you are barring African-Americans. So that's one problem. And then, too, there are other problems related to our lower access to health care. We're less likely to have our personal doctor. The safety net hospitals near us are closing. So um, there's that. Because of our um, hampered access to healthcare, hampered access to the vaccine, there's also, well, there are other things as well. Designating our policies that designate who gets priority tend to conflate status and risk. So if you look at hospitals, for example, um, certainly healthcare workers on the front line should be prioritized. They're at high risk. But as we know, the people who also clean the hospitals, who feed the patients, the lower status people there are also at high risk, but they're not prioritized in the same way. So there are a lot of factors here. And in, and focusing only on a putative uh, reluctance by African-Americans is simply inaccurate. And more than that, it's unethical because it casts sort of blame the victim scenario. You know, it's not that we don't make vaccine available for you. You're choosing not to take it. Well, it's a lot more nuanced than that. We need to recognize that. No, I would, I would, uh, I would definitely agree. So, in the meantime, on the erosion of of medical consent, uh, obviously people need to be informed. But then, what what do they what do they do about it? Are there ways that you think people should begin to try to figure out how to affect policy and get to the bottom of who makes these policies and get in the middle of it? Right. As I detail, the policies um, operate against people's ability to have any real individual power or authority here. So the agency has to come from banding together and confronting lawmakers. You know, if um, if you band together with whatever group you belong to, say you're active in a sorority, say you're active in you know fraternal organization or um, NAACP or any group that you're in, you know, if you read this book and you're concerned about it, as I think you should be, make it a priority in that group to reach out to your lawmakers, depending on where you are, municipal or state lawmakers, and let them know 
that this policy is not acceptable to you. Because a change in the law allowed this. We need a change in the law. It also would really help if, and this is a long term, I, I wrote in Medical Apartheid that part of the problem has to do with the way hospitals and medical centers interact with the people who become their subject pool, people who live in their catchment area. You know, they have these IRBs, these boards whose job it is to evaluate medical research. But the law says they only need one person on the board who's not affiliated with the hospital. So you end up with like, say, 10 or 15 scientists and one person from the community. One person can have no agency or power in that situation. I proposed back in 2007, we should have IRBs that are half people from the community and half scientists. That way people from the community could have a real say in the type of research that gets funded and approved. And also in cases like this, people from the community could make it clear to the hospital is a priority for us. You know, the IRB as it stands now, might be in favor of these kind of studies and might not be, depending on which one it is. But if people from the community feel strongly about it, that would give them a chance to actually turn their feelings into some real effect. You know, they could actually have some real power by hampering the ability of the of the medical center to approve studies until this is addressed. So getting together with whatever group that, you know, you're active in and approaching lawmakers and letting lawmakers know it's unacceptable. And it needs to be, you know, revoked. I think it's the best and most direct step. Folks, the latest book, Carte Blanche, The Erosion of Medical Consent, the latest from Harriet Washington. What, what's your next subject? What's your next book? <laughs> it's been a very tiring year. <laughs> I'm sure and um, yeah, I don't really know. There are a lot of things I'm interested in, but I haven't decided yet. Unfortunately, there's plenty of fodder for us to um, all address. So. Indeed. Well, we thank you for joining us here at Washington, and thanks for all your work. And uh, you've got a lot of fans out here. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thank Carte you, Blanche, folks, check it out. The Erosion of Medical Consent. Thanks for getting woke and listening to Make It Plain. Please remember to listen, like, subscribe. And wherever you get your podcasts, please give the show a five-star rating. And please do spread the word. Let's all continue to pray for each other during this pandemic and this police-demic. If all hearts and minds are clear, it has been made plain. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. The new Super Beats Heart Shoes Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. 
Support your healthy CoQ10 levels and blood pressure with two chews a day. Visit Radio Beats, B-E-E-T-S dot com and save 15% with promo code DEAL.